Is my mic on? All right. I flipped the switch, but I didn't know if it got flipped. Well, it's good to see everybody this morning. I mentioned uh, in the previous hour to those who are in here, uh, we're thankful to the Lord for your church. We love your church. We love you guys. Uh, Some of you guys we know very well. Some of you guys are new faces to us, but... uh, I am Michael Smith. I'm the pastor at Sovereign Grace Baptist Church in Joplin, Missouri. And uh, it's a privilege for us to be here today with you, an honor to be able to speak on the things of God. And so uh, I pray that the Lord will be with us as we uh, continue in looking at his word. Uh, And whenever I say that, I mean specifically Jesus Christ, uh, because this word is all about him. So we'll be looking at that this morning. Turn with me, if you would, this morning over to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, if you would. <clears throat> you know, they say that Romans is the, the great doctrinal treatise of the New Testament. Uh, and I believe it is. It's a heavy, it's a heavy book. A uh, lot of theological teaching in that. Um, If we look at the Old Testament, I would say Isaiah would have to be its counterpart. Uh, Isaiah is a is a weighty, weighty uh, letter, and uh, I tell you what, brethren, it's full of doctrine, uh, as is with all God's word. But uh, it has some great teaching uh, in here. Looking at Isaiah chapter fifty, I'm going to start reading in verse five, and then I'm going to read down to verse seven. And then we'll bow and ask the Lord to bless this time together. It says, The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, And I know that I shall not be ashamed. Father, Lord, we come to you now this morning and we thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for the opportunity that we still have in freedom in this country to gather together as a church and to speak and to preach and to teach and to praise God as as you've dictated unto us through your word. And Father, I thank you for this church particularly that you've given us today to be able to meet with. And you, we ask, Lord, that today by your spirit that you might come and meet with us, that you might give us understanding, that you might teach us today. Lord, we need your presence among us to give us ears to hear, eyes to see, give us understanding of your word to cause us to worship you. And Father, I need your help now to be able to preach. I pray, Lord, that you would give my mouth utterance of things that are true, that you would restrict the things that are false, Lord. I pray that you would put me behind the cross of Christ, that they might not see a preacher, but they might see Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the word of God that you've given to us to open up and to see and declare the things of Christ. And we ask, Lord, now that you would enable us today to bring forth worship to you that is pleasing to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We see in this passage the great faithfulness of our Savior. Uh, It says there in verse 6, he says, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that pluck off the hair. 
I hid not my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. We see Jesus' faithfulness here. Now, I would say this is talking about Jesus, by the way. Uh, while this is written by Isaiah back in the Old Testament, this is a prophecy of what would happen with the Lord Jesus. It is a uh, foreshadowing of the things to come. And uh, we see that uh, this is uh, uh, what exactly happened to Christ whenever he was uh, brought before the leaders and uh, the religious leaders and the political leaders. We saw that he, uh, that he was smitten, that he had his beard pulled out. We saw that uh, they spit upon him. Uh, and yet we see that the Lord here says, God will help me. He will not be confounded. He says, I set my face like a flint, and I know that I, not, I shall not be ashamed. The Bible says that our great substitute set his face like a flint. What does that mean? We know the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised not the shame. So he wasn't rebellious. As he said here, I will not be rebellious. He was faithful to go to the cross. He knew that God was going to help him. But why, what does this mean to set his face like a flint? Well, it means that he was determined. He was determined to go to the cross and nothing was going to turn him aside. We see that he had a great love for the sheep. The Bible says, I love my sheep and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says that he, uh, he is a faithful servant. All that the Father has given me to do, I've done. I've come and did it. And despite all that he went through, the Lord never wavered. The Lord never turned away. The Lord never changed his mind. The Lord never could be turned from his mission that he was sent to do. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Is that what he was sent to do? And that's exactly what he did. He saved his people from his sin. Now, we see throughout Scripture Jesus' determination uh, in, in the Word of God. Look, if you would, with me to Ezekiel chapter 3. Ezekiel chapter 3, and we see another foreshadowing of Christ here in these passages. <clears throat> you know, the, Jesus said in the volume of the book, it's written of me. Everything in God's word is written about Jesus. Amen. We look in the Old Testament and we see all the types and foreshadows. We see a lot of activity that's happening with the people of Israel and wars and, and taking land and and, you know, captivities and non-captivities, and we see worship and sacrifices and deliverances and all these kind of things that we see. Everything in the book is pointing to Him. It's all about Him. Whenever you look at the Word of God and you study the Word of God, brethren, I encourage you to study and read the Word of God looking for Christ. It's all about Him. And in Ezekiel, even though we have these types and foreshadows, although we have this imagery, these symbolisms that we see throughout Scripture, we got to dig through the natural. we got to dig through the physical. And as I mentioned at a Scripture earlier this morning, we got to look at the spiritual with spiritual. The spiritual eyes looking at spiritual things. There's always a spiritual teaching behind the physical things that we see in the Word of God. It always brings us to the higher learning than the base learning. The natural man likes to tug at all the base things. 
Tell me what to do. Give me some marching orders. Tell me what's, you know. We need to look at the spiritual. Dig a little deeper into the spiritual and pray that the Holy Spirit would give us understanding of these things. In Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 8 and verse 9, we see a great picture of our faithful Christ. He says in verse 8, he says, Behold, I have made thy face strong against the faces, their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint, I have made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. We see this great picture of this, uh, of this head being made hard. Okay, he, I've made your head like flint, like steel. Okay, I've made your head hard. Uh, they can't do anything to you. This is God speaking to Christ, saying, listen, I have given you strength. I have given you purpose. I have given you all that you are to do, and I will be your God. I will be with you through all these things. I will not leave you. And he says that he will give him the strength that there should be no fear that none of his enemies are going to triumph over him. And so we see that great picture of God giving strength. And that is why Christ was such a faithful servant. Look, if you would, at Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, look at verse 18. It says, For behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city and an iron pillar and a brazen walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. So here now we see a picture of the Lord Jesus found in a, in a big walled city a defensed city, a strong city with iron pillars and, and brazen walls, okay? Same as like having a head like flint, okay? It's strong. It's, it's headstrong. Now, all you guys out there, you know your wives are headstrong, aren't they? Sometimes you, you, you just better listen to them, okay? Do what they say. Why? They're not going to change their mind. Jesus was not going to change his mind. He was set like a flint. He was given like a wall that had defense cities. Nothing was going to bust through and change his heart, change his mind, change his uh, activity, change his motive, change anything about what he was set to do. Why? Because the Lord was with him. The Lord will deliver him. The Lord Jesus knew that all of the Godhead was in him bodily that all the fullness of the Godhead dwelled within him, and that he himself was God, and that God was with him in all that he was there to do. In his humanity, he came. But he was not just human. He was fully God. And that's something that we hold dearly, that our mediator was more than just a man, but no less than God. He was a fully man, fully God, and he came as that mediator between God and man. And the Bible says that God was with him. God was his strong arm. God was his power. God was everything to him. 
Therefore, he was not afraid. Therefore, he was not feared. Therefore, he was set like a flint to go to the cross, and nothing turned him aside. Look, if you would, at Psalms chapter 89. Psalms 89 and verse 21. Psalms 89, verse 21, it says, With whom my hand shall be established, mine arm also shall strengthen him. God was strengthening Christ through this whole thing. The enemy shall not exact upon him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. And I will beat down his foes before his face and plague them that hate him. But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. His horn speaks of his power. I will set his hand also in the sea and his right hand in the rivers and he shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. So we see here God is with Christ. God is strengthening Christ. God is taking care of all things that Christ was going to do. He's going to beat down his foes. He's going to plague them that hate him. He's going to give him faithfulness. Why was he faithful? Well, because he was God. He couldn't do anything else. The reason that Jesus is impeccable is not just because he held out to the end. The reason Jesus was impeccable or never sinned was because he was God. Jesus was never, ever, ever, ever in danger of changing. The Bible says that God does not change, he's immutable. He cannot change. The Bible says that God cannot lie. If Jesus, is, if Jesus is God, He cannot lie. If He says He's going to go do something, He's going to carry it out and do it, right? Well, look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 and verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. Speaking of Jesus here, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was to come, he knew what was about to happen. Matter of fact, he ordained all things that would happen. Isaiah 53 said, For it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It was God's predetermined will that Christ would be taken. According to Acts, at least, it was God's predetermined will that wicked men by wicked hands would take Christ and crucify him by the determinate counsel of God. Well, Jesus is God, isn't he? <laughs> he knew exactly what was going to happen, brethren. He knew every event that would take place. Yet he, his face, the Bible says his face was set like a flint and he was going to go. And he had no problem, he said, with the joy that was set before him, he went. Now, we know surely he was treated shamefully. So, back in our passage, if you'll turn back there with me, in Isaiah chapter 50, it says, <clears throat> For the Lord God will help me, therefore, because of the Lord's help, I shall not be confounded Therefore, since I won't be confounded, 
Have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. It said the Lord would not be ashamed. But yet we know for a fact, surely he was treated shamefully. He was treated shamefully. The Bible says that he was despised and rejected. The Bible says that he was blasphemed against. He was falsely accused. He was abandoned by his friends. He was beat. He was mocked. He was tortured. But even worse than all of that, brethren, he was made to stand as a sinner. Our holy God stood as a sinner in the place of sinners. I don't know about you, but that cuts deep. Whenever we start thinking about a holy God condescending for us and standing as us. And you think about yourself. Nobody knows the depths of our own depravity except for us. There are things that I've probably done in my lifetime that I don't want nobody to know. Thoughts that I've had that I don't want nobody knowing. The Lord knows them, but I don't want nobody else knowing them. And you think about that and the Lord stood as me my place. How shameful that was that the Lord stood as a sinner. It was a shameful thing to see. It was a shameful thing to see those people mocking him at the cross. Do you not know who this is? And they were at the feast saying, he saved others, let him save himself. Come on down off that cross if you want to come down off that cross. You think you're God, come on down. How shameful he was treated. So we know he was treated shamefully. And while the Lord endured the cross, he surely despised the shame that he experienced. But brethren, is this this shame that he was talking about that I shall not be ashamed? It's not what he was talking about. While you're there in Isaiah, look at Isaiah chapter 53. If Isaiah is the pinnacle of the Old Testament as far as the doctrinal treaties, I would say Isaiah 53 is probably the cornerstone chapter in the treaties. Isaiah 53 in verse 2, it says, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That's how the Lord was looked upon. Second Corinthians chapter 5 we read. If you look at verse 21. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God made him to be sin for us. Now, he never made him to be a sinner. Jesus never sinned. But he was made to be sin for us. He stood in our place. He bore the weight of God's wrath for our sin. But he was never a sinner. Never once. He was a spotless lamb. Amen. He was imputed sin. 
All the sins of all of his elect were laid upon him, and he took them as his own, but he never once sinned. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, we read, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Yes, brethren, while Jesus did despise the shame, he set his face like a flint and endured it for us as our substitute. But brethren, this could not be the shame that Jesus spoke of because he said he would not be ashamed. So what possibly could be the shame that he's talking about? What's the Lord talking about whenever he says not being made ashamed? Well, let's think about that for just a little bit in the time that we have remaining. In the everlasting covenant, as Christ stood as our surety, as Christ stood as our substitute, our advocate, our intercessor, he was given a people by the Father to represent. Christ became our representative. We were given to him by the Father. Matter of fact, in John chapter 17 and verse 6, Jesus in his prayer before his crucifixion, he prayed, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now, in direct context here, he's speaking of the apostles. But we know as we turn later on down into the passage in chapter 17 that Jesus included the rest of us because he said that he prays for all that would believe uh, from their word. But he doesn't pray for the world. Okay? That he was praying for all of his people. So while in direct context this particular verse is speaking of the apostles all of us included there, he has manifested his name unto all of his people that was given to him. And we, of course, know this is true because the Bible speaks all over the place about being given to Christ. And we'll get to that probably here in just a little bit. Look at Hebrews chapter 8, if you would, with me. And verse 6, speaking of Christ, it says, But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. So Jesus stood as our surety. He was given of people, and there was a covenant that he made for these people. He covenanted for these people, and they were given promises. It says there, But now he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises. We know that the old covenant, it didn't have a very good promise to it, brethren. What was the, what, what was the covenant? Do this and live. Don't do this or don't do this and die, right? It was a covenant that never was meant to be kept, by the way. That old covenant never was meant to be kept. The law was never given to bring righteousness to anybody. The law was always given to manifest man's sinfulness. 
So that covenant of the Old Testament was a covenant to show that man cannot keep the law of God, that God is holy and man is unrighteous. That covenant in the Old Testament is a covenant that was weak and that it could not make anybody righteous. The New Testament clearly tells us that. The law could never save a single soul. But what Christ did in his righteousness, his obedience, his substitutionary work for us saved us. That's why it's a better covenant. The reason it's a better covenant is because the old covenant was do this and live or don't do this and die. Or if you do this and I tell you not to do that, you're going to die. And the fact is, is that man cannot help but do that. You see all those things over there? None of us can keep that. You see that right there? Nobody has ever kept that except Jesus. Even your saved self can't keep that. The Bible says that to keep the law of God is to keep it all. You have to keep all of it. Not just part of it. Not the, not the moral law. The ceremonial law and the civil law, that went away. The moral law, we've got to continue to keep. It's all or none. And the Bible says if you break it in just one place, one little aspect of it, you've broken all of it. Because the law of God is one body. It's not little individual parts. Everybody likes to break the law up into all these little segments, but the law is the law. It's one thing. And God clearly says that the keeping of the law is to keep it all. And the breaking of the law is if one infraction happens, you've broken it all and therefore you are guilty. And what does the law say? Those who sin shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. The law says that you must die. There isn't no escape. There isn't no gray area. It's black and white, brethren. That's why the old covenant was not a good covenant. And that's why the new covenant is called the better covenant. Because the new covenant is not based on man's ability. The new covenant is based upon what God alone does. You'll notice in that eternal covenant, God never did covenant with man at all. It was God's covenant towards man, but never a covenant with man. God made a promise that he would do this. And it says here that he hath obtained a more excellent ministry, more excellent ministry than what? Than that of the Old Testament priest, than that of Moses. He has a lot better ministry than that. Why? Because it's based upon better promises. See, the promise of you shall live if you keep all this was never going to be kept by anybody. Never going to be kept. But how about this? I have fulfilled the law on your behalf. You are righteous. That's a lot better promise, brother. I've done it all. It's finished. That's a lot better promise, isn't it? So with these great and precious promises, Christ was given to be our Savior so that these people would receive. The reason he did that is so that we would receive, not make potential to receive, but that we would receive all of the promises, 
All the promises are yea and amen in Christ Jesus, right? Not nay or maybe. It's yea and amen in Christ Jesus. So with these great and precious promises, he's been given to be our Savior. As that surety, Christ covenanted that he would return these people to God. Now look with me, if you would, at Genesis chapter 43. We're going to look at another type, another foreshadow. Genesis chapter 43. Now stick with me here, brethren, if you would. I am getting to the point. There is a point, by the way, and I am trying to get to it. Genesis chapter 43, and look at verse 9. Now, just to kind of give you a little backdrop of where we are here, if you remember, Joseph was sold into slavery and then eventually became a leader in Egypt. His brothers, you know, had thrown him into a pit, sold him into slavery, all that that took place. And now, years have gone by, Joseph's now leader in Egypt, and his family is in the middle of a famine, and they're having to go to Egypt to get some food. They don't know that this is Joseph that they're fixing to go talk to, right? Well, they go talk to him, and Joseph recognizes who they are, but they don't know who he is. And then Joseph sends them back, because if you remember, Benjamin, his brother, was left at home. He didn't go. So he told him, go back, come back with Benjamin. Go back with your younger brother. Well, they didn't, they was afraid something was going to happen because they knew that their dad did not want to send Benjamin to go. Well, that's kind of where we're at here. Okay? The boys are trying to, in, trying to talk the dad into letting Benjamin go. So verse 9, he says, or excuse me, verse 8, And Judah said unto Israel his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die. Notice how he said that we may live and not die. Now, think, again, brethren, remember, let's move out of the physical, the natural, and look into the spiritual. We're looking here, what does this talk about in spiritual terms? We're talking about Christ being our surety, our representative. Okay? So who we see here? We see Judah is talking is talking to cry or to talking to God, okay? And so Judah is the picture of Jesus. And he says here, he says, "Send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die." <clears throat> Both we and thou and also our little ones, I will be a surety for him. See Judah said, "I will be a surety for him." He says, of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. See, Judah was become the surety for Benjamin. He's telling the father, he said, listen, let us go. And I promise that if we go, we'll come back with him. But if I don't go then we're both going to die. Well, why was Jesus including himself in there? Well, brethren, there is a union between Christ and his people. He felt that weight of union so much that he actually, it was, he became sin for us. 
I mean, he took those sins as if they were his own. The Bible says that he suffered and he went through all the things so that he might know how we are feeling. He, that he might be our, our, our uh, 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 that he might understand how we are. What we go through. And so Jesus was our surety. He came. But what was the promise that He made the Father? He made the Father that I will go and I will bring Him back. And if I don't come and bring Him back, then it will be me to blame. Now you think about that with the Lord Jesus Christ. He covenanted that He would go and be their surety. He would be their substitute. Everything that God's justice required for these sinners that God had set His love upon, who He had chosen from the foundation of the world, who truly had sinned, but yet had been given to Christ, Jesus said, I will go and everything that God's justice demands, I will be for them and I will return them to you. And if I go and don't return them to you, then I'm the one to blame. Why? Because it was God's plan for salvation. It was God who had, who had uh, raised up Christ to be the mediator. It was God who sent His Son to die for those whom He loved. It was, it was on Christ's shoulders to be the Savior of His people. That's what His name meant. Savior. So if Christ did not bring those back, then whose fault was it? Well, it definitely wasn't our fault because it never was intended that anything that we do would be the one thing that would save us. It was always on Christ's shoulders. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So the weight was always on his shoulders as the surety. If he doesn't accomplish what he was brought up to do, then he would be to blame. Back in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. Isaiah 53 and verse 11. The Bible says, speaking of God, it says, He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify the many, for he shall bear their iniquities. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. God is going to be satisfied by what Christ does. Therefore, when Christ comes, everything that he does is going to be satisfying to God. I preached a message the last two or three weeks at our church about satisfaction. And how that uh, is found in propitiation and how it's found in atonement and in, and in redemption. And how that God is satisfied in what the work of Christ has done. Not only in the legal aspect of it, meaning that Christ had to be the substitute, that sin had to be paid for, all those things. But also in the experiential part of it, in the fact that everything for what Christ did legally must be applied and actually be experienced by His people. If you remember, whenever the priest went in and made the sacrifice and he sprinkled the blood, that had to be applied to the people. The people had to be given that. Listen, 
We have to be given every promise that Christ purchased in that atonement. Everything that Christ did, those promises have to be applied to us. If they're not applied to us, then God lied. Christ lied. And so God was satisfied. Why? Not only because Christ accomplished all the work that was done, but everyone for whom Christ died receives the benefits of it. God is satisfied not only in the work of Christ, but in the salvation, actually salvation of the people. What we experience. Why were you born from above? Why were you granted faith? Why were you given repentance? Why does God preserve you throughout time and not let you fall away and keeps you until the day of the Lord Jesus? Because Christ died for you. Those are the promises that He has made and are applying to you now that He purchased for you then. That He covenanted before the foundation of the world would be yours. Look at John 6 and verse 37. It says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Brethren, it didn't say might. Maybe. It said shall. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Why? For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Brother, do you think anybody for whom Christ died is going to slip away? I can tell you with 100% positivity, I, am, I, I mean, I'm so convinced of this more than anything, there will not be one person in hell that Christ died for. Not one. If Christ died for you, the blessings and promises of God are yours. Will be yours. Will be given you. You've give, been given them. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And remember, we talked about it in the last hour. The shall come is believe. Shall believe on me. The word come means believe. He says, For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. This is the Father's will. It's the will of God that everything that Christ done be accomplished. Praise the Lord that it can't fail. In John chapter 10 and verse 14, we're just about done. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and I am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. <clears throat> again, brethren, we see that all that the Father hath given the Son, all for whom Christ hath died, shall hear his voice. And as we talked about last hour, the only ones that hear are the ones who have been given of God to hear. The only ones that hear are his sheep. But they will hear. You know, there are some strains of Baptist out there 
not to get into a whole bunch of other stuff, but there are some strains of Baptist out there that believe that there can be people, because they're eternally saved, never are saved in this time. They never come to know Christ, never hear of Christ, believe on Christ. And they go the whole entire life never knowing of Christ, but yet they'll be in heaven because they were eternally saved by Christ. Well, brethren, I, I, I've looked that thing over every which way I can. I can't find that to be in Scripture anywhere. He said, all that the Father giveth me shall come or believe upon me. He said, every one of my sheep shall hear my voice and follow me. Not be surprised on the day of judgment that I'm there and, wow, who's that? No, they're going to know me. He said, they shall all know me. He said, you will no more teach your neighbor. Know God, for they all shall know me because they will be taught of God. Right? So Jesus here declares that all of his sheep, there's going to be a satisfaction. There's going to be accomplishing of something. So as the surety, Jesus coveted to do this, and the Holy Spirit is coming and applying everything that Christ has done, those promises to his elect. So how will he not be ashamed, brethren? What is the shame that Jesus would be speaking of in our passage? Well, the shame that Christ is speaking of is the shame of enduring the cross as the sinner's substitute and one for whom he stood being lost. The shame of being a failure. The shame of losing one for whom he died. The shame of not receiving all the promises in salvation from Jehovah. The shame of taking their sin and paying the full price for it and then one of those precious children having to suffer the penalty for it. That's why I say I can guarantee there's not going to be anybody in hell that Christ died for because the price was paid. Everything was paid. And that would be unjust for God to bruise Christ, to punish Christ for the sins of somebody, but then turn right around and then punish them for their sins. That's what Jesus is talking about. I shall not be ashamed. I shall not be ashamed in the fact that I will accomplish everything that I have covenanted to accomplish. And whenever I go back to the Father, I will be bringing all those whom I covenanted to save. Not one will be lost. So let us strike from our mind and our vocabulary that there is even a remote possibility that there will ever be found in hell one for whom Christ would, had died. Listen, his name is Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins, and he shall not be ashamed. Ain't that a wonderful, wonderful promise? Your salvation is so secure, not because you keep it, not because you're such a good person, not because you're an obedient person, not because you're a nice person or your mom and daddy are nice or because we're Baptist or anything like that. The reason that our salvation is so secure is because of our surety who said, I will not be ashamed. I will go and I will bring them back because if I go and don't come back with them, I will be to blame. And I can tell you, brethren, the Lord Jesus is not going to be to blame for losing any because he said to the Father, all that you've given me, I have lost None. Are you going to ever lose your salvation? You know, there's people in Coahuila preaching that. There's people around this town that preach you can lose your salvation. Well, they have a different Jesus 
They have a different gospel. They're listening to something foreign to what the child of grace knows to be true. We cannot lose our salvation because our salvation never depended upon us to keep. It was all in our surety, and he shall not be ashamed. Father, we come to you now. And Lord, we cannot ever express